The Infected, written and read by Benjamin Percy. An excerpt from his new novel, Red Moon. Patrick wishes he hadn't ordered the large Coke, but he was tired, and he doesn't drink coffee because it tastes like dirt, and the large cup cost only 10 cents more than the medium, so he thought, what the hell? But now, he has to pee, and he has the window seat, and there is no way he can sneak past the two women sitting next to him without making them shut their laptops, making them stand, making a big production, making everybody on the plane look up and stare at him and think, oh, that kid has to pee. And they will be thinking that. They will be thinking about him peeing when he locks himself into the chemical-smelling closet of a bathroom and struggles with a zipper and tries to maintain his balance, tries not to piss all over himself while turbulent shakes the plane. Just as he's about to touch his neighbor on the wrist, to tell her, excuse me, he's sorry, but he has to get up, Someone two rows ahead of him, a man in a charcoal suit, rises from his seat. His face is pale and sweating. His body seems twitchy along the edges, almost as if he were humming, vibrating. His neatly combed hair is starting to come loose in gray strands that fall across his forehead. Patrick wonders if the turbulence is getting to him, if he is going to be sick. The man staggers down the aisle, yanks open the bathroom door, and slams it shut behind him. Patrick curses under his breath. Not only does he have to wait, but he has to wait for a puker. He turns around in his seat three times in as many minutes, checking the bathroom, willing the door to open. Each time he looks, there's another person standing in the aisle, all of them with their arms crossed, their faces pensive waiting. He supposes he should join them. He unbuckles his seatbelt and opens his mouth, ready to finally excuse himself to stand, when a ragged snarl comes from the back of the cabin. It is hard to place with the shout of the engines, the chatter of so many voices. Patrick wonders if there is something wrong with the plane. He remembers seeing a news report about how so many planes are behind on their maintenance schedules and shouldn't be in the air at all. Maybe the turbulence has shaken loose the screws holding the tail in place. There is a growl, a long, drawn-out, guttural rumbling, and though it is hard to place, it seems more animal than machine. The cabin is now hushed except for the creaking of seats as people turn around with anxious expressions. Then the bathroom door crashes open. A bald man in a rose bowl sweatshirt is the first in line for the restroom, and so he is the first to die. The door jars him back. He would have fallen except for the narrow hallway where he stands, the wall catching him and preventing any further retreat as the thing emerges from the restroom, rushing forward like a gray wraith, a blurred mass of hair and muscle and claws. It swings an arm. The bald man's scream is cut short, his throat excised and replaced by a second red mouth that he brings his hands to, 
as if he could hold the blood in place. But it sprays between his fingers. As if to make up for his sudden silence, the rest of the passengers begin to scream, all their voices coming together like a siren that rises and falls. The thing begins to move up the aisle. The lichen moves so quickly it is difficult for Patrick to make sense of it, to secure an image of it, except that it looks like a man only covered in downy gray hair, like the hair of a possum. Teeth flash. Foam rips from a seat cushion like a strip of fat. Blood splatters decorating the porthole windows, dripping from the ceiling. It is sometimes on all fours and sometimes balanced on its hind legs. Its back is hunched. Its face is marked by a blunt snout that flashes teeth as long and sharp as bony fingers, a skeleton's fist of a smile. And its hands, oversized and decorated with long nails, are greedily outstretched and slashing the air. A woman's face tears away like a mask. Ropes of intestine are yanked out of a belly. A neck is chewed through in a terrible kiss. A little boy is snatched up and thrown against the wall, his scream silenced. The plane is shuddering. The pilot is yelling something over the intercom, but his voice is lost to the screams that fill the cabin. Some people are weeping. Some are praying. Some are climbing out of their seats, pushing their way up the aisle, where they bang at the cockpit door, slam their fists and feet and shoulders up against it, desperate to get in, to get away from the terror, working its way toward them. Chase remembers the first time he talked to Augustus. Seventh grade, Obsidian Junior High, after gym class, he walks into the locker room. Showers sizzle, steam fills the air. Boys are scrubbing their armpits with soap or toweling off in front of their open lockers. He spins his combo and pauses before yanking the lock because of the voices he hears, jeering, laughing like jackals. Three boys, still in their shorts and tank tops, stand outside a toilet stall and kick at the door hard enough to dent the thin sheet of metal. Come on, they say. Come out and show us your pussy. Another kick and the door jars open. Chase recognizes the kid inside. They're in the same section of math, and the other day, in line at the cafeteria, a girl wearing bell-bottoms and her hair pulled back in a ponytail turned to the kid, who had accidentally rubbed up against her, and said, Don't touch me. You haven't even gone through puberty yet. He wears small glasses on a head too big for his body. His hair is the wispy blonde of corn silk. His arms and legs are stumpy, his torso round, all of this giving him the appearance of an enormous baby. The same can't be said of Chase, who feels so much younger than his body. A few years ago, his bones began to ache and he developed a vicious hunger, gobbling up six eggs for breakfast, a whole pizza for dinner, sucking down five gallons of milk every week. He studied himself often in the mirror as his limbs stretched to match his oversized feet, his hands, what his mother called puppy paws. He started rubbing himself off in fifth grade, shaving in sixth grade with his father's razor and barbasol. He is taller than most of his teachers and plays forward on the varsity basketball team. He's not a good guy. He knows that has nothing to do with what happens next. 
But most of his trespasses have to do with pleasure, seeking it out, the buzz of a beer, the way a blowjob makes his whole body feel like a tingling nerve ending. He's not a bad guy, either. He has a certain sense of righteousness motivated now by these three punks, with their braces and pimply backs, getting off on ganging up on somebody weaker than them. From what Chase gathers, as he moves toward them, the kid has been camping out in the toilet stall after Jim, skipping a shower, changing where no one can observe him. Chase comes up behind them. Without pause, he kicks one of the boys square in the ass and sends him keeling into the wall, striking it with a wet thud, crumpling into a mewling ball. Chase cracks together the skulls of the other two boys and then shoves them headfirst into the nearby urinals. He holds them there for a good five seconds, mashing their mouths into the deodorant pucks. Then he slams the flush bars and leaves them sputtering. The kid has gathered up his clothes. His face is impassive, and his glasses have fogged over, hiding his eyes. Neither of them says anything. Not until the next day, after algebra, when the kid introduces himself as Augustus, and asks what he can do for Chase. You don't know me nothing. The rest of the class is filing out of the room, glancing at the strange pair, Augustus standing with his arms crossed and Chase sitting with his legs sprawled out, their height about equal. I disagree, the kid says, and maybe you will as well when you hear my proposal. The precision of the kid's words, the confident purse of his mouth, the white short-sleeved shirt like something an accountant would wear in the summer. I'm not stupid, and I'm not looking for help. Chase is less angered than amused. My grades are fine. You have obligations I do not. Sports and socializing. Homework gets in the way of these, yes? If you feel like completing your assignments on your own, great. But if, on occasion, you have an away game or a hot, sexy date, then you will hand the work off to me and I will happily oblige. And for this I kick anybody's ass who messes with you? A curt nod. Tit for tat. A contract they have more or less honored for the past thirty years. Chase has never called Augustus by his name. It was a mouthful and obnoxious, the name of some old poet who liked to write about the pansies growing in his garden. The kid. That's what Chase called him. Until they enrolled at the University of Oregon, when the kid took Chase aside during orientation and said he would rather not be called that anymore. Why not? It implies a lack of strength. Then what the hell am I supposed to call you? My name. Out of the question. He settled on Buffalo. For the enormous head, too big for any hat, that seems to grow directly out of his sloped shoulders. Chase nicknames everyone he meets. His administrative assistant, Moneypenny. His legal counsel, No Fun. The head of his security detail, Shrek, for his bald head, his jutting forehead, his barrel of a torso balanced on tiny legs. Even the people he doesn't know, he finds a way to name them. A bartender is Honey or Sugar. A valet or groundskeeper is Buddy or friend. It's his way of making people come a little closer, 
Look him in the eye and smile. Sweetheart, is what he calls the woman working the front desk at the Kazumi Day Spa. He recognizes her from the tea house. The wrinkled face and square body and silvery hair pulled back into a bun stabbed through with chopsticks. A potted bamboo sits in the corner. A scroll bearing a string of Japanese characters hangs behind her. She doesn't smile at him, but lifts her arm, gesturing to a dark hallway, and says, with a heavy accent, Last door on the left. The spa is in southwest Salem, not too far from the tea house, a nondescript windowless brick building tucked between a pawn shop and a money lender, the street busy with rusted-out cars missing their mufflers. In a back room, the recessed lighting gives off a dim orange glow. Music trembles, piped in through the overhead speakers, something acoustic, what Chase recognizes as the same instrument played at the tea house, the koto, the plucked strings making him think of spider's legs dancing across a web. In the center of the room waits the massage table, and against the wall squats a glass-doored marble-topped bureau full of white downy towels, bottles of oil and lotion. On top of it, a plug-in fountain, water gurgling over colored stones. Buffalo used to tell him not to come here. For a long time, his principal duty, as chief of staff, seemed to be telling Chase what not to do. Do not badmouth Weyerhauser. Do not make fun of the trailblazers. Do not curse during live press conferences. Do not get intoxicated at black-tie fundraisers. Do not punch Ron Wyden. Do not tell the Oregonian that you think Nancy Pelosi is one smoking hot old lady. The attacks changed everything. You realize, Buffalo said more than a month ago when the planes came down, that this is the best thing that could have possibly happened. He and Buffalo were sitting in wing-back ox-blood leather chairs, watching the flat screen, flipping back and forth between CNN and Fox News. Same footage, different talking heads. Outside Denver, the wreckage smoldered in a wheat field. At PDX and Logan International, the planes were parked on the tarmac like giant white coffins. A reporter interviewed a woman wearing a Looney Tunes sweatshirt and purple leggings. The tape at the bottom of the screen identified her as a family member of one of the passengers. It's the most horrible thing in the world, she said, roughing away her tears with the remains of a tissue. And it's happening right here. Buffalo stood then and tucked his hands in the pockets of his sport coat and walked over to the window, the gray light coming through the water-spotted glass. One way of looking at it is this, Buffalo said, as a tragedy. He turned to Chase and removed a hand from his pocket and pointed it like a gun. Here is another. It is a game changer. He was the one who approached Chase about running for governor. And now, for the first time, Chase can see it in his trembling mouth. Buffalo seems to believe in the possibility of re-election. We need to get you behind a microphone by this evening, ideally with that plane in the background. Speak from the heart. Just make sure your heart is more furious than mournful. On the television, another shot of the flaming wreckage, 
Buffalo's glasses catch the shimmering orange light and the lenses glow like twin suns. People are ready for fury. Fury is what Chase gave them. Two hours later, outside the open hangar that now housed the plane, rain wetting his face, a crowd of reporters gathered around him. What do I think? He said to them. I think it's time to tighten the leash, roll up a newspaper, say, bad dog. At the day spa, in the back room, a digital thermostat on the wall reveals the temperature to be 75 degrees, warm enough to make him eager to kick off his boots, peel off his clothes, pile them in a heap in the corner. Jeans and a denim shirt, corduroy jacket, belt with a buck knife holstered to it, silver six-inch blade, a birthday present from his father when he turned 16. He carried it in the Republic and doesn't go anywhere without it now. He retired as a colonel, and across his naked shoulder, like a bruise, he carries the faded ink of the anchor and eagle tattoo. He palms a condom from his pocket. A white towel hangs from a hook. He ties it around his middle. The light is such that his shadow hardly seems to exist, oozing faintly across the floor and then the massage table. He climbs up and settles his face into the cushion groove. He hears the knob rattle, the door click closed, the footsteps whisper across the carpet. Her name is Choco. They visit for an hour every few weeks. Sometimes he lets her dampen his back with oil, rub the poison out of his muscles, and sometimes he does not. Sometimes he asks her to flip him over. Sometimes she takes him in her mouth or her hand, and sometimes she climbs onto the table with him. Hey, you, he says and raises his head to peer at the woman standing a few feet away. She wears a red kimono with a black dragon stitched into it, hair down to her elbows. She smiles. The fountain gurgles. He lets his head drop into the groove again. Give me a little rub, will you? I'm knotted up. He feels a hungry anticipation. The blood pools in his center. His erection presses uncomfortably against the table. He hears her clothes drop. He hears her breathing heavily, almost panting. Hey, what kind of party's going on without me? He is smiling when he rises on his elbow. The pressure of the table has made his vision muddy. At first he believes this is why her nude form seems to shift, to bulge and bend, like a reflection seen on the body of a passing car and then he blinks hard and observes between blinks the contorted posture, the lengthening teeth, the black hair bristling like quills from her skin. He feels a hole in his stomach like he used to get when small arms fire popped in the near distance, when tracer rounds streak through the night like blood-red comets. Her voice is guttural when she says, I have a message from the resistance. Before he can slide off the table, she has his leg snatching it up, her claws and then her teeth sinking into his calf. He kicks at her, and she falls with a mouthful of blood. His blood. He doesn't take the time to examine the wound, to recognize what this means. Infection. She growls. It is a bestial sound. 
He can feel it, feel it in his bones like when bass pours from a too loud stereo. He has never been more vulnerable, naked and unarmed, bleeding. He doesn't feel any pain, not yet. Only the warmth of blood running along his leg, its tackiness underfoot when he stumbles back, looking for a weapon, something to swing. The bureau jars against his spine, preventing any further retreat. The mist from the fountain licks his back. He yanks its cord from the outlet and scoops it up and hurls it at the lichen. Its stones are like a brightly colored hail rattling the floor. The bull arcs toward her, and she puts out her arms to catch it, and it thuds against her chest, and the water dampens her hair and makes it appear a rippling shadow. She is on one side of the massage table, the padding torn through in yellow slashes, and he is on the other. He needs to get to the pile of clothes, the knife nested in it on the opposite side of the room. He can smell her. He would recognize that smell anywhere, the smell of a lichen, like an unwashed crotch, supposedly set off by their hyper-stimulated pituitary gland. Her posture is hunched, and her breasts dangle pendulously, and her arms rake the air, and her face is nearly impossible to decipher beneath all that hair. She makes a noise that sounds like a guttural string of words. His skin goes tight. She begins to climb over the table, toward him, one arm and then the other. He tries to run and nearly topples his feet sliding across the stones. He is to the clothes when she leaps and knocks him to the floor. For a moment they might be lovers, a tangle of limbs, breathing heavily. She is faster than him, but he is stronger. He loops an arm around her throat and drags them back against the wall. Her body bucks against his, but he holds her in place. She wears his arm like a necklace. He is choking her, and she claws at him, tearing away ribbons of skin from his forearm, his thighs, his ribs, wherever she can reach, while he sets his jaw against the pain and uses his free arm to seek out the knife yanking his belt from the pile of clothes, fumbling with the leather casing. Finally, he withdraws it and unfolds the blade. In its silvery flash, he catches a glimpse of his eyes, wide with fright. Then he draws the knife toward them in an arc. The woman, no, the lichen, the thing, tries to block the blade, swatting and tearing at him, but her strength is fading, and after a few wild swings, he sneaks the knife to her chest, where it catches against a rib and grinds its way inside her. What would have been a growl against the pressure of his chokehold escapes as a plaintive mule. He stabs her again and again, so many times, knife, 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 far more than necessary, her body limp in his lap. She doesn't reassume her human form, not like in the fairy tales. She dies a beast, and a beast she remains. He feels faint. The room seems so cold, and her body so warm. He tries not to look at his ruined arm when he retrieves the towel from the floor and makes a tourniquet of it. Roses of blood bloom immediately through the cotton. There are no windows. There is only one way out. 
and only one way in. It takes him a while, but he drags the bureau against the door. He remembers how severely the old woman stared at him, and he knows Choco did not act alone. He needs help. His hand is trembling and slick with blood, but somehow he manages to retrieve the hand held from his jacket pocket. Four men, all wearing tracksuits, pick up Augustus in a black Chevy Suburban and drive at a perilous speed to the Kazumi Day Spa, honking their way through red lights, screeching their way around corners. It's an unlisted address, but Augustus knows the way and directs them from the back seat, telling them to hurry, goddammit, hurry, even as he leans into a turn and braces an arm against the window to keep his balance. They find the front door locked and use a metal battering ram to splinter it from its hinges. One man remains posted at the entrance while the others, their glocks unholstered, charge inside. They give the all-clear, and Augustus walks into the dim entryway. The lights are off, the hallways and rooms empty, except for one barricaded door. They shove at it, and a crack of orange light appears, and only then does Augustus tell them, Stop. The men step away and wait for him to tell them what to do. Stay here, he says, and shoulders past them and puts all of his weight against the door until the bureau slides away and allows him entrance. He hurries the door closed before the men can spot Chase, curled up on the floor, dizzy and naked and shivering from blood loss but alive. There is blood smeared across the wall and soaked into the carpet that squelches underfoot. I'm here, Augustus says, not daring to touch his friend, not knowing how long the disease can live once exposed to the air. He tows the slumped body of the transformed lichen. Her hair, tacky with blood, has the look of seaweed plastered across the beach at low tide. Bitch, he says, you really fucked things up. The governor attacked in a whorehouse, half dead and likely infected, his political career finished, Augustus brings back his foot and considers kicking her face, but doesn't, not wanting to dirty his shoe. Instead, he covers her body with towels so that the others won't see her. Red splotches soak through immediately. He pulls a terry cloth robe off a hook and tucks it around Chase. There is only one choice. He opens the door and tells the men to get a makeshift stretcher for Chase. And then, once they get him to the car, burn the place. Burn it to the ground. The living room becomes a makeshift hospital. Buffalo. Chase can hear him dimly. It's a comforting sound, like when... As a child, on long car trips, he would intermittently wake to the murmur of his parents talking in the front seat. He strains his neck to observe his friend pacing back and forth with his handheld pressed against his ear. His voice is panicked, hurried. Chase wants to tell him to take it easy, but then the darkness of sleep once again overtakes him. 
An air mattress replaces the blood-stained tarp. He smears disinfectant and changes bandages. He draws a warm bath and seasons it with alcohol and tincture of iodine. He buys oxycotton off of one of his neighbors, a doctor and campaign donor, and dopes away the pain with 160 milligram doses. He serves Chase Gatorade to get his electrolytes up, brings him platters of eggs and toast when he has an appetite. All the while, Augustus wears a mask, goggles, and latex gloves. Every day he disposes of the black plastic garbage bag that grows big-bellied with soiled bandages and washcloths and latex gloves he peels off as carefully as if they were a diseased condom. He tells the staff, the reporters, that Chase is at a strategy retreat. When they ask if the rumors are true, if he is taken ill, Augustus laughs and says, He's, as always, the picture of health. The dinette runs up against the living room, and Augustus sits at the table, spooning into a bowl of cottage cheese, while Chase weakly attempts to exercise. For the past few weeks he has done nothing but sleep and stumble back and forth to the bathroom. He needs to get the blood flowing again, he says, or he might rot away into a husk. You understand the way this works, I assume, Augustus says. Chase is wearing a pair of gray sweatpants and nothing else except for the bandages that patch his arm and torso. He dips up and down, his face red and wet with sweat. You get bit by a rabid dog, you get rabies. Isn't that the gist of it? Not exactly. Saliva isn't enough, thank God, or every sneeze on a subway would infect a dozen people. The spoon clicks against the bowl and then his teeth. We're fortunate that Lobos is more like HIV, a blood-borne contagion. A bite doesn't guarantee infection, but it's quite possible. A lichen's gums bleed after they transform, and it's a great way for the prion to propagate itself. I'm fucked. If, by that you mean, am I infected, yes, I think we can assume as much. But if, by that you mean, am I finished as a politician, not necessarily. Three people know what happened in that room. One of them is dead. Chase appears in the State House rotunda in dress uniform, peaked cap, midnight blue jacket with red trim and a standing collar. Behind him, when he tromps down the marble stairs, follow members of the Oregon National Guard. He approaches the podium, its front adorned with the Oregon seal, and pauses there as the soldiers perform a traditional march. Their swords slash the air, and their boots thud the stone floor and make the air tremble. They come to a stop beneath a massive American flag suspended between two pillars. Chase snaps off a salute and removes his hat to set on the podium. Thank you, he says, first to the guardsmen and then to the reporters who sit in folding chairs twenty rows deep. Their cameras flash and create a strobe-like effect that blinds him. For three weeks he has not made a public appearance. 
After appearing everywhere, he was suddenly nowhere, and the media took note. The press conference is Buffalo's idea, a show of strength, and a bold declaration that will distract from the gossip of his sudden absence. Despite his rigid posture, despite his small smile, Chase does not feel well. He doesn't feel like himself. Maybe that's a better way to put it. He is a man divided, host to a pathogen that can overtake him at any moment. Sometimes his heart races and his breath comes in hurried pants. His muscles ache. His toothbrush pulls away from his mouth bloody. He rakes a hand through his hair and finds it wet with sweat. He can smell himself, his armpits and crotch damp, musky pockets. His consciousness sometimes feels as though it has short-circuited, whirling with lights through which dart, alternately, the silhouette of a man and then a wolf. The reporters lower their cameras and the white haze of his vision solidifies. I stand here, a proud, humble, Oregon boy. He pauses and cocks his head, at first wondering what he hears, realizing it is their pens scratching across paper like the noise of hundreds of insects chewing something fibrous. Chase clears his throat. My family has lived in this state for three generations. My great-grandfather laid roads in eastern Oregon. My grandfather designed the lumber mill that was, for so many years, the industrial heart of Old Mountain. My father ran a 6,000-head cattle ranch. My roots go deep. He almost never speaks from scripted material, but Buffalo says that has to change, that he can no longer leave anything to chance and risk a flash of fear or anger. Somewhere in the distance he hears a siren. A police cruiser, he feels certain, though really he has no idea how to tell the difference between the wail of one compared to that of an ambulance or fire truck. Regardless, someone is in trouble. Some of you might remember there was a time when the billboards at our state's border read, Welcome to Oregon, now go home. Many in the audience smile. It was a joke, but not really. Oregon is a treasure, and we did not want it spoiled by outsiders, which is exactly what has happened. We've become a haven, especially those liberal enclaves of Eugene and Portland, for lichens. We have compromised our borders and our safety. One thing I know as a rancher, you got to build good fences. I am introducing legislation that I hope will be approved by year's end. He pauses when the cameras flash again and the reporters whisper among each other. For the moment, no one speaks. No one looks up. All of them bent over their notebooks and laptops writing furiously. A cell phone rings and goes unanswered. He spots the red eye of a video camera blinking at him. He stares into it. There should be absolutely no mercy shown to any lichen offenders in our state, and our legislation serves to impose 
the strictest standards of supervision to ensure that we are protected. Our old way of worrying about who might be offended must be radically altered to account for keeping people safe. New policies will require open minds, a willingness to do things differently, more strictly. The expense to some will be to the benefit of many. This state can benchmark the nation's policies. And to those who think my goals are too high, too extreme, I say, you ain't seen nothing yet. He doesn't field questions, but they ask them anyway. When he escapes up the stairs, he can hear every one of their voices calling after him. The sky is closing down, and dark is coming. It's that time when the day isn't really gone, but isn't really here. Augustus escorts Chase to his home in Kaiser, a white neo-colonial with black shutters. He does not entertain visitors, so the walls are as white and bare now as they were the day he moved in, the rooms mostly empty except for an Ikea table and chairs in the dinette, a couch set before a widescreen television in the living room, a mattress and box spring in the master suite upstairs. The basement remains unfinished, the ceiling bare studs, the wall cinder block, the floor a sloping concrete with a central drain. Three naked light bulbs offer meager light. Augustus stuffed the recessed windows with insulation and covered them with plywood to muffle the sound and prevent anyone from peering inside. He hired a security firm to install a steel cage, its panels built out of a heavy-duty six-gauge wire welded at every wire contact point. The swinging door is hinged with flanged head bolts and fitted with an industrial padlock made with a case-hardened alloy steel shackle. A garden hose runs from the industrial sink into a coil on the floor. Later, he will use it to spray away the shit and piss and blood, the foaming tide of it swirling down the central floor drain. Chase pauses before the cage and says, I hate this. And Augustus says, I know and puts a hand on his shoulder to show his support and encourage him forward. Take off your clothes, Augustus says. You don't want to ruin them like the last time. It is not that he grows larger. It is that he soils himself in excitement, claws himself in agitation. Chase peels off his uniform and tosses it into a ball outside the cage. Thin scars cross-hatch his shoulders and chest where the claw marks healed over. His left forearm is a lumpy mass of reddish scar tissue. The door clicks shut and the padlock snaps into place and Augustus settles into the aluminum folding chair and adjusts his glasses and rests his hands on his knees like a theater patron who waits for the lights to dim, the curtains to part. Every night, he transforms. Augustus demands it, to get it out of his system and exhaust his body, to normalize it, control it. Transformation does not come easily, 
He has told Augustus, every bone seeming to break, his skin crawling with angry wasps. He cries out and falls to the floor. His body contorts itself as if run through with electricity. From what Augustus has read, this will get easier over time, like a nerve deadened by repeated blows. This never would have happened, Augustus says under his breath, if you had just listened to me. As if in response, Chase hurls himself against the bars of the cage. He would have made a fine berserker, Augustus thinks. Those Norse lichens who so long ago worked themselves into a frenzy, transforming before battle and fighting in a savage trance. This would take time. Months, maybe. But Augustus, as a boy, owned several dogs, and with discipline and patience they all learned to fetch his slippers and shit outside. He has no doubt the same will be true of Chase. Isn't that right, old friend? Chase circles his enclosure. His arms lash at nothing but air. His teeth snap together as though chattering out some code. He presses his face, wild-eyed and misshapen and split by a fanged grin against the cage. There is a fridge in the corner, and Buffalo withdraws from it a package of raw hamburger. He tears off the plastic and crushes his fingers into the bloody mess. He molds tiny red balls and tosses them into the cage and, with a peculiar little smile, watches Chase devour them, one after another. We hope you've enjoyed this excerpt from Red Moon, originally published in the May 2013 issue of Esquire. The full audiobook, read by the author, is available May 7th as a digital download online, on CD at bookstores everywhere, and at esquire.com slash redmoon.